Welcome to Urban Puritano. In this episode, we explore a biblical motif for the church, namely, the kingdom of God. Gird your loins and stay tuned. All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. The beauty of God's Word is that whether you study it with a systematic theology lens or a redemptive historical biblical theology lens, you will always find coherence and consent of its parts. In episode 8, we scratched the surface on the spiritual dynamic that gave birth to the church and the ensuing spiritual antithesis that was realized after Genesis 3.15. We saw in a broad sense that the church is universal, invisible, spiritually militant, and owes its existence to the particular and sovereign grace of God, carried out by the exclusively divine action cryptically revealed as early as Genesis 3.15. Furthermore, we perceived a theological resonance between the enmity God placed between redeemed mankind and the serpent's spiritual descendants, and what Calvinists call the effectual calling. This is how God gathers a people unto himself. The post-fall natural enmity we all have towards God is overcome. The sinner's darkened mind is enlightened, and the rebellious, incapable wills are renewed such that the gospel of Jesus, the promised deliverer, is freely embraced. God, as early as Genesis 3.15 revealed that he would deliver a people who would constitute his called-out ones. They would be characterized by their love and loyalty to him and their opposition to the serpent. Thus, when we entitled episode 8, Entering the Church Through Enmity, we wanted to scratch the surface on the theological resonance between God's placing enmity between the redeemed and the serpent and what can later in Scripture be seen as the doctrine of the effectual calling. It is this calling, a calling every bit as effectual as Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, that makes us part of the congregation or assembly of the saints. We continue. Given everything that we said last time about the universal, invisible church, it would be profitable to explore a little further on the spiritual dynamic that continues operating since the coming of the Deliverer, Jesus the Messiah. Let's draw from a biblical motif 
to draw attention to another aspect of the church, namely, the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2.12 exhorted, comforted, and charged a local assembly of believers that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Again, notice this calling results in inclusion into God's people. It is an effectual calling with present implications. We are to walk worthy of God. This walk is visible, and the Thessalonian audience receiving this instruction was a visible community located in a particular place, where God rules in the hearts of his people, assembled around an obedient approach to worshiping him, there is found a visible local church. Paul highlights in a special way this community as part of God's kingdom. But this motif is deeply rooted in Scripture. Daniel 7.14, for example, speaks of the Messiah's receiving a kingdom. He says, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which will not be destroyed. Do you sense any theological resonance between this verse in Daniel and any other verses in the Bible? Do you perceive a redemptive historical thread being weaved by the divine author of Scripture? God's revealed intention includes gathering a people to himself, and as it progressively developed, it was to lead to God's people co-laboring with him and expanding his kingdom of called-out ones into local assemblies that would exist to worship him. The rulership of God in the hearts of his people was a promised reality revealed in the new covenant, of which the local church is a divinely mandated, visible community of. The new covenant operates from a divine principle of efficacious grace. God says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Jeremiah 31. This is the so great salvation that Jesus, the Messiah, was sent to purchase for God's people. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Apostle Paul ties various threads together via Luke in Acts 20, verses 24 through 28. He says, Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood.
For our purposes, I simply want to draw your attention to the threads closely woven together by the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus is mentioned, the gospel of the grace of God, preaching the kingdom of God, the whole counsel of God, and to the particular community he calls a flock to which the leaders were overseers who were to shepherd the members. This community, and by logical extension all such communities, were purchased, acquired, obtained at the cost of the blood of his own. Indeed, Jesus taught his redemption of a people would necessitate a substitutionary atonement or a ransom for many. Again, cryptically revealed since Genesis 3.15 and progressively unveiled in the rest of Scripture by various means of foreshadowing, prophecy, symbols, typology, etc. This is what's at the heart of what it took for God to gather a people unto himself, for God to reverse the fall and acquire, purchase, obtain a people unto himself, the shepherd had to lay down his life for the flock of God. This is the reason for Calvary. For this reason, the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper to commemorate Calvary. Luke twenty-two nineteen through 20 says, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. All the benefits of the new covenant were purchased by the Messiah's substitutionary atonement. They result in forgiveness, justification, imputed righteousness, regeneration, the inner renovation of our minds and wills that results in our being granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. To believe on him, our promised deliverer, and while on this earthly pilgrimage, to suffer for him is how we show our love and loyalty to God and our spiritual enmity that he placed within his people towards our spiritual enemy, the serpent. But we do so not individualistically. We do so in new covenant communities called local churches. Luke twenty-two twenty-nine records Jesus saying to his apostles, And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me. The immediate literary context is a dispute among the apostles over who among them would be the greatest, in the aftermath of a prior dispute over who among them would betray Jesus after he just instituted the Lord's Supper. Ironically, Jesus had to remind them that the greatest among them had to serve the rest. Just as he was supremely serving them and pointing to his purchase of the new covenant spiritual blessings in his approaching death, they had to reorient their thinking of kingdom greatness. There were no greater servants to the church than the apostles. The apostles were about to fulfill a privileged role of service in redemptive history. Theirs was the unique responsibility to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to both Jews and Gentiles. 
Theirs was the unique responsibility of binding and loosing, or pronouncing old things obsolete and new things lawful. Theirs was the unique responsibility of blazing the trail and declaring remission of sins by the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, as promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. As such, this kingdom Jesus was bestowing on the apostles was a kingdom of grace. It was and is a spiritual, mediatorial kingdom. Its territory is the human heart. Its temple is the whole body of Christ, of which new covenant local assemblies are visible and divinely mandated communities of. Its template is the Word of God, which the apostles had the unique responsibility to complete for the people of God. The apostles were bestowed, granted, or assigned the spiritual kingdom of new covenant grace. The Lord Jesus covenants with the apostles this kingdom, as evidenced in the institution of the Lord's Supper in perpetual remembrance of the cost paid by the Messiah to acquire a people for God. These ordinary men were covenanted a kingdom by the Lord Jesus because ultimately the Lord Jesus was bestowed, granted, assigned, or covenanted a kingdom by the Father. Jesus said, Just as my Father bestowed upon me, the Father grants, assigns, bestows, and covenants with the Son a kingdom which the Son willingly accepts. And the Son in turn covenants with the apostles the kingdom which they willingly accept by the redemptive irony of the very blessings that flow from Christ's atonement and the new covenant itself. It is this ocean of spiritual blessing flowing from the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 and other passages that the apostles, and by extension us, have entrance into the church and are privileged to unite together and expand his kingdom through the church. Again, the prophet Daniel speaks about this kingdom. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one, shall not be destroyed. Daniel seven thirteen and 14. A little further ahead, the prophet declares, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom, and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Daniel seven eighteen. Do you perceive any theological resonance between this kingdom spoken of and the one spoken of by our Savior? Do you not sense a redemptive historical thread being weaved by the divine author of Scripture? It is no wonder, then, that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God variously as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It is no wonder, then, that Jesus commissioned his apostles, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Finally, it is no wonder then that the Apostle Paul instructs a new covenant assembly in ancient Corinth concerning the consummation of God's plan in terms of the kingdom of God. He says that the culmination of God's redemptive purposes will be in defeating our last enemy, which is the final defeat of death itself. Then comes the end, when he, speaking of Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. Quoting Psalm chapter 8, verse 6, stating what the original Adam was to do and the apostle using it to show what the second Adam actually did do. Paul continues, But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28 The only wonder, dear saints, is why any one of us should benefit from the omnipotent grace bestowed upon us by Christ's messianic and mediatorial work. It is a bestowal covenanted by Christ and the Father and applied by the Holy Spirit to the glory of God and to the good of His people. Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers. 